note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We good? Yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things LEGO games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of LEGO games, chat with early developers and seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the LEGO Group. Ethan, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. I'm excited. Excited because we're wrapping up season three, our penultimate season, with a really amazing story. We are. Now, let me ask you a question. Yes. What does a ghost town in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. author Philip K. Dick, action figures, Power Rangers, and rubber suits all have in common? Good one. Galador. Yes, you're right. And that Lego group toy line from 2002, bolstered by a quirky television show, is what we're talking about today. The toy's history includes a dive into alternate reality gaming, a PC game that was canceled but still got published, and the Lego group's one and only video game console found in the back of a talking robot action figure. If you've never seen the show or played with these strange brickless toys, you're going to be in for quite a ride. Actually, even if you have, we probably still have some amazing surprises to reveal. So let's do this. We've talked a bit about the LEGO Group's infamous decline and near bankruptcy in previous episodes. But in a nutshell, the company posted its first ever loss in 1998 and laid off about 1,000 employees. That decline continued through 2004 when Jorn V. Neutrup became the CEO of the LEGO Group. In discussing how the company found itself on the brink of bankruptcy, there were a number of missteps. Some say that among those contributing factors was the somewhat infamous Galador line of toys. For those of you unaware, Galador Defenders of the Outer Dimension was a toy line launched in 2002 alongside a television show and video games. The toys didn't feature any of the familiar studs and tubes that make up the iconic Lego brick. In fact, at first blush, they look like typical, albeit rather bulky, action figures. There were a couple of humans, a couple of robots, and some aliens. While it wasn't clear from the box they came in, the toys actually did share a bit of DNA with traditional Lego toys. You could yank their arms and legs and sometimes heads off and switch them with each other. The -the out-of-the-box design for Galador all started with a strange request internally. The company asked a concept development team to come up with a more organic approach to building, one that wouldn't include any bricks. Project Genesis, as it was known in the beginning, was more similar to action figures and toy animals than it was a construction set. Instead of interlocking bricks, the design was meant to open up the idea of building to things beyond the bricks, specifically more organic things. 
Some of those early concepts included creatures that could be built by interchanging plastic body parts. The building approach found in those creations, called Lego Beans, was married to the idea of creating a new line of Lego action figures, and that turned into Lego Galador. Niels Milan Pedersen, who has now been a designer at the Lego Group for more than 40 years, was one of the core team of designers assigned to the project when it first started to take shape. It was a little out of our normal Lego product line, where there wouldn't be that many studs and knobs on the things. And uh, it was also this, that it was more or less a big figure. So we had to uh, find out a lot of new ways to make uh, connection parts for the elements. They were very different from what we normally make, also because they were in a bigger scale. Yeah, it was very new to us to make. It was because they were trying to approach this action figure market, so to say. And we were a little unsure how that would go because we were more accustomed to another sort of customers, maybe a little younger customers. And also because this really would challenge the fantasy and the imaginations of the kids we were going to make the things for. So in many ways, it was quite unfamiliar, but also very exciting to to start up on. And also because we were told that this was going to be really big. We were going to make this uh, television series and a lot of stuff which we had never tried before. So uh, they really put a lot of effort into it and really had big expectations for the thing. While Niels and the other designers were initially skeptical of the idea, once they started hosting playtesting for the figures, they found children enjoyed playing with them. Specifically, once a child was told they could mix and match the body parts, they really got into the concept. It was also a fun challenge for Niels and the team, who had all spent their careers at the company working within the challenges of creating objects using the traditional look and feel of the Lego brick. To compensate for the lack of tubes and studs, the team looked at the company's existing Technic line, which was used in the creation of Bionicle figures. They were also given sketches from which to build, though the process was different than what they were used to, Neil said. We had to try to think quite different because normally, for example, if we were making some animal creatures style. Normally in legal breaks, we would add in some uh, angles and, you know, the square or not so organic design to the thing to make it fit more to the Lego figure and the normal Lego bricks. We were quite freed of those normal restrictions and was actually told to do it much more organic, so to speak, and as alien as possible for many of the creatures we were going to make. So it was quite different. As we say, normally we we ought to be able to sculpt whatever people want us to sculpt. So, uh, yeah, we would be in for it. These new toys brought with them another challenge. Because they were so unique to the Lego group and its existing line of toys, the company had to create a lot more unique molds for the manufacturing process than they normally would. This led to another first, Neil said. The company ended up outsourcing that work to China, where that task could be done much faster. 
As the work continued, there was a lot of attention being paid to this new sort of play system. A big part of those interested in Galador and toys like it was a group within the company that felt that the Lego brick needed to be updated to keep up with the times. At this point um, in the Lego group's history, especially marketing was worried that the normal Lego brick might be a little out of fashion. It sounds odd to say that now, but that was the feeling in those days and uh, the market is going in other directions. That was why they actually put so much effort and so much energy into this new action figure thing. Also because they thought this is a way where we can connect the new medias, the television series and some of the new computer gaming or whatever. It was a way to try to get more into the future toy lines because it was old sort of Lego break. It was considered a little too old-fashioned uh, at this point. It, there was a general feeling, not, <laughs> not among us who actually worked with the breaks, but I think especially the marketing thought that, yeah, we need something new and different. While Niels and the rest of the designers were working on the physical models that would become the first wave of Galador toys, the Lego group had another interesting idea up its sleeve. Not content with simply rolling out its own take on action figures tied to a television show and video game, the company wanted to include some cutting-edge tech in the toys as well. Lau Kirstein, an engineer who specialized in acoustics, was hired on specifically to work on the features that would be built into one Galador toy, the Keck Power Riser. Like the other figures, the Keck Power Riser had arms and legs that could be popped out and replaced and even came with two heads. But unlike the other figures, it had an LCD screen built into its back. Yeah, Ethan, and this is where things get really weird. The Keck Powerizer was, essentially, a mini Lego game console. That LCD screen, about the size of a Nintendo Switch game card, let kids play 22 different games that were preloaded into the figure. While there are three buttons beneath the screen, the games were all actually played by tilting the entire figure in different directions and rotating his arms and legs. Brian, that doesn't sound like it's quite as fun as the Game Boy. Yeah, you know, as a collector of handheld game systems, and I definitely put this in that category, I have to say this is by far the most challenging system I've ever played with. You have to really move this powerizer around to get him to recognize that you're tilting him. And rotating the arms and legs can be hard to do while also watching that sort of small LCD screen. Mm -hmm. Also, these arms and legs can kind of pop out of their sockets if you get too excited when you're playing the game. So, for instance, if you're playing the swimming race game that comes with the powerizer, you need to rotate these arms to get him to swim, and you need to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. But if you play like Hover Glider, you need to tilt the entire powerizer to guide the ship on the display and then rotate the arms to fend off incoming enemies. Wow. It's a lot. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. You gotta really be coordinated. But that's not all you can do with the powerizer, right? The Keck Powerizer communicates with the Galador TV series. Galador.com, Galador Games On, Game Boy Advance, PlayStation 2, PC CD ROM, and GameCube. Not only can you swap out the heads, which changes what the figure does and what's displayed on the LCD, the figure also interacts with both the video games and the television show. Every dimension needs a hero. And that's where Lau comes in. 
In the Galador project, it was very important to link the action figure to a TV series. And it was the concept or the intention to do that very literally. So the TV series should get a response out of the toy, basically. So that was the uh, overall brief I had when I was hired in, that we need to do some kind of interaction between the TV series and the action figure. I thought it was a challenging task, but on the same page, I also thought it was very interesting and I thought it could potentially be a very innovative task to be part of. So I was actually very excited about being assigned to this. Lauer was hired because of his work on something called psychoacoustics, which is basically about how sound can affect you emotionally. So for instance, if you hear a mosquito in a tent and it sounds much louder than it is, well, it's because your brain amplifies the sound to make you aware of it. The idea Lau and the LEGO group had was to use this same sort of acoustic trick to mask the sound of computer code being transmitted from a television show to your listening action figure. The way it works is that in the TV show, and I was actually sitting in Canada doing the production of the TV show together with the sound engineers of the TV shows. And the way it works that at certain period of time, we looked at the audio tracks and we did actually, now it's getting a little bit technical, but we did a frequency analysis of the track and we find areas where it was actually possible to hide some audio coding. It's almost like morsing, but just very, very fast. And you're not able to pick it up by the human uh, ear. But we actually put them in in certain positions. So we set a command and we send a timestamp and the action figure will receive that message. And at a certain point in the TV show, it will actually respond to what was going on. Receive signals from the Galador TV show. So for example, if there was a, a discussion between two characters in the TV show, suddenly the Kirk Power Riser will respond to what was going on at the right time. Try to escape now. So he became a 3D dimension watching the show because he was actually getting alive. And it was amazing to see the, the kids' re response to it. We did a lot of kid tests with this. So it was really a magic and surprising for the kids. Yeah! The Keck Power Riser has a speaker and microphone built into it, along with all those sensors and the LCD screen we talked about. It was also pre-programmed with a 450-word vocabulary, 85 animations, and 56 sound effects. So instead of adding new dialogue to the figure to match the show, the designers would just look at the show and what was being said and then add in the proper audio cue to trigger an appropriate, though sometimes generic, response from the toy. Exactly. They had this standard library of voices that they can do. Right into my trap. Try to escape now. Corium activated. I'm ready. We actually also had it in a way that we could actually transfer small files. It took longer time because the bandwidth of our communication was very, very low. But we had some memory, free memory for more unique sound effects and lines. And we used that from time to time. We basically, instead of sending a command, uh, we were actually sending a, a small audio file through the audio spectrum. That's pretty cool. 
but it was small file. It was like two second files, audio files, three seconds audio files uh, in that range because it took much longer time to transmit those files instead of just commands and timestamps. The team was also responsible for deciding to add not just those audio responses, but the LCD and gameplay abilities, Lau said. It was important for us that the electronics should not just be there just to be there. It should underline the theme of the Galador universe. And we thought having a screen to be able to play some mini games with the action figure was actually a very nice and neat way to underline the whole theme. And it will give us some extra ingredients in the play with the kids to actually be a small story starters. So we had, I remember we had a lot of small different mini games. Flying around was one of them. So we added some sound, some display images and a little bit of gaming. So small game mechanics that was actually able for the kids to imagine that the kick power was actually flying. So, you know, using all these different small mini games as story starters was actually a great concept for bringing the kids into this universe. It was important for us that it was, you know, a part of the play and not something you did on the side like you could do with a Game Boy or something similar. And that's why we embedded all these different type of sensors. So it became an integrated play experience and not something you did separately. And that's why we added the tilt sensor so we can actually see how the the action figure was orientated. We had rotation sensors in the arms and we were using the arms for different actions in the games. And we also had a sensor in the um, in the torso that could detect which type of head that was on. So we actually had a a bad guy and a good guy hit that could be swapped, and the action figure will react differently, whether it was the good guy or the bad guy that was in. And that was all things that we thought was important to have an integrated interactive experience instead of something that was just a Game Boy on the side, if you like. The team decided early on that they didn't want to simply add a gamepad to the action figure beneath the screen because it wouldn't fit in with the greater theme of Galador, which is what led to all of those motion sensors. To get kids more involved with the TV show and traditional video games, they could use both of those to unlock special mini-games on their action figure. This was done through the same system that directed the figure to say specific things. So these hidden audio codes would blast out that would unlock a minigame built into the figure that might be tied specifically to the week's TV episode. So for instance, maybe a show with a strong water theme would unlock the diving minigame in the Keck Powerizer. The action figure could also communicate with other Keck Powerizers as well using that same audio transmission system. While designers and engineers were hard at work on the toys for the upcoming launch of Galador, the LEGO Group needed something that would bring all of these things together, an overarching story that would breathe life into the toys, the video games, and drive what they hoped would be a massive new original TV show. So the company turned to Tom Lynch. Tom got his start in television in the 70s, working on rock and roll shows and then music videos. In 1983, he created a show called Night Tracks, a late-night take on MTV music videos produced for TBS. 
That and the birth of his first son led to the creation of Kids Incorporated, a children's show built around the concept of a band performing at a local music club. Its popularity helped launch not just Tom's career in the world of tween shows, but also careers of a variety of actors and musicians, including Fergie, Mario Lopez, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and Martika. Tom would go on to create more than 20 series in the young teen television genre. In early 2000, he was in the midst of producing Caitlin's Way and Just Deal when the Lego group came knocking. They asked Tom and his production company to come up with an idea for a show that would work with Galador. And so, he set about creating a new universe. It's the dream of every creator. Somebody likes your idea, and now you got to make sure it's really good, you don't screw it up. That's that time where somebody's interested in your next idea, or it's a dream of me, where somebody's actually excited about something, and then you go away and you have to fill it out. Because I do know that in a room, I can portray a room and I can get a room excited, but it comes down to what's on the page. What are we really doing here? And for me, that's very much eight hours a day, 10 hours a day of thinking of the show, looking at other resource materials. I went through a lot of fantasy art. This one started with me as a visual sensibility, like what was going to be the visual aesthetic. And then secondarily is what is the character that I want to tell a story about? And I had to create Nick. It just occurred to me, Nick Bluetooth, that's a very funny name to me because I don't even know if Bluetooth existed back then. <laughs> I was, I'm not too sure where that came from, but it was uh, basically a, a hero's journey, very much a Joseph Campbell hero's journey. And I think he got locked into another dimension. So it started with character, story, visual aesthetic, and you just live with those things for weeks. I had a team that I trusted at that point creatively that would say, ah, this has been done before, or this is good, or this is weak. And you put this all together in a presentation, which would include some artwork to get the tone of what you want visually. It would include detailed breakdowns of characters, uh, what their journey is over each season. And it would include the tone of it, comedic versus action-adventure. And I think I had laid out five seasons, 100 episodes. I think I kind of knew the general arcs of what was going to happen with it. And then you take that and present it. When Tom brought the concept back to the Lego group, they loved it and put Tom's group in touch with the character designers for the Galador toy line. The world that grew out of that collaboration was built around this concept of two teens, Nick Bluetooth and Allegra Zane, traveling to another dimension in a spacecraft nicknamed the Egg to do battle with Gorm and his evil sidekicks. The two are aided by a robot named Jens, an anthropomorphic frog named Euripides, and a small bespectacled furry blue warrior named Nepal. Importantly, while Allegra uses her exceptional karate to take on the bad guys, Nick has the ability to glinch, which basically transforms his human arms or legs into the limbs of aliens or machines and allows him to use their abilities against them. It was an original and fascinating idea that seemed to fit in well with the zeitgeist of the moment, one influenced heavily by shows like Legends of the Hidden Temple, The Secret World of Alex Mack, and Power Rangers. Bringing the Galador characters to life in a science fiction universe, though, was not going to be cheap. But Tom said that the Lego group was willing to make the investment to create something that, in, in his words, simply didn't exist in television. So we get to do the TV show, and we go to Montreal to do it. There's uh, studios up there, there's facilities up there, there's things that we want to work with. And in order to get kind of what was in my head, we had to use green screen so we could create the uh, stunt work 
we could create the, we could have people flying, we could have that kind of stuff. We could have great landscapes and worlds behind us with it. Then we had 3D CG, so these characters could actually move and the villains could attack and ships could come in and all that kind of stuff, could walk around. You know, I think the, uh, I think his spaceship could walk around with four claws that could move around and all that. Then we had prosthetics because on some of the close-up work, we'd have to put in these arms of the different creatures or legs. We'd have to do inserts and close-ups of that. Uh, I mean, animatronic. That was more animatronic we would have to build. This show had a lot of physical action explosions, so we have what we call hard effects, which are the dirt bombs going off and things dropping. And live actors would have to work in that whole lineup. So sometimes you'd have four or five layers of different effects for one shot. And in writing it, it was really easy and wonderful. In executing it, it was, oh man, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> How are we going to do this? <laughs> and uh, that's where this gentleman, Alan Best, who was, uh, I kept meeting with people who kept telling me, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I knew I could do it. My experience at The Secret World of Alex Mack, I remember going up to, I had this vision of what this young girl would do. She would change this kind of liquid uh, creature and move around. That was certainly inspired by The Abyss from Jim Cameron. So ILM did those effects. So I went up to Industrial Light and Magic. You know, I thought I was a big shot. I'm a little 30-year-old show creator, 33-year-old show creator. I'm going up to Industrial Light and Magic, and I meet with a team up there. I want to do this and this, and this is how this is going to go. And they're all, great, no problem. We got it, we got it. That's interesting, it hasn't been done, great. The price for them to do a three-second effect was literally the budget of the entire show. So I was like, okay. So I went up there, this very kind of, I wouldn't say cocky, I would say enthusiastic. <laughs> all things were possible. And I got back home and I had already sold the show, Alex Mack, and it, they were expecting it to air. We're in production. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how to do this. So we had to find a way to do it. And we did. We did a bunch of computer rendering. We rented a house that we put in 20 computers. We had a person that knew how to do it and we just locked them up in there and rendered it. And so I knew if I could think it, that I could accomplish it. And Alan Best was my partner in that, definitely. He would come and say, Tommy, you don't want to do this shot because that's going to take too much. But if we did this shot here, you'd get the same effect and we get to combine it with this. And he had an incredible, incredible technical ability and the gift of not shortchanging the creative. He really understood what a script was and what these characters were and the emotion was. So every time we rehearse a scene, and I would rehearse the scenes weeks in advance so he could go off and figure out how to make them. And um, that's what we did. And we did all of this. We had, uh, I think the company was, we had probably 50 animators in a room and they were just a huge rendering farm at that time. Production on the show started in early 2000 with Tom, the cast, and the crew shooting all 26 episodes for the first two seasons. The plan was to launch the half-hour episode starting February 9th, 2002 on YTV in Canada and Fox Kids in the United States. As production began on the first wave of 15 or so toys, and Tom was deep into the production of those first two seasons of television shows, the Lego Group started looking at other ways it might market the new property. One of the ideas the company had was to create a website for Galador before it was officially revealed. Instead of promoting the show or toys, though, the website was designed to be a sort of game in itself. Gabriel Walsh was brought on as a producer for this interactive experience the team dreamed up. He explained what the experience looked like when someone wandered onto the page. 
the idea that we had was that you would go to just like a normal, you know, coming soon type page with some graphics. And suddenly the graphics would start to shake and all of a sudden a full screen flash environment sort of popped up and took over. And it was like logging into an old sort of terminal. And as it logged in and, you know, kind of green on black, the characters would sort of begin to swirl and turn into the Lego minifigure typeface that was sort of floating around. And you could interact with this character via the command prompt and sort of like read about this scientist's um, adventures in transdimensional travel. A great warrior is coming with the map to free Galador and the entire dimension. So the idea was that you really didn't know what was happening. You maybe thought for a minute that this was real and only only after, you know, a few minutes where you sort of looked around, were you able to determine that it was a promotion. The idea was that visitors could dig out nuggets of backstory by exploring the website and typing commands into this command prompt. Turning the browsers into a sort of investigator as they tried to piece together what ended up being some of the lore of the fictional world of Galador. The approach was, at the time, a new form of marketing tied to something known as alternate reality games, or ARGs. An alternate reality game was a way of doing almost like a treasure hunt that took place both in the real world and online. And the idea was that, you know, you were trying to piece together disparate clues and find the narrative out for yourself. Those types of experiences, because they were so intertwined with viral marketing campaigns, you know, became pretty cliche pretty fast. But um, in general, there were some magical experiences that, you know, like the Beast and things like that would way back in the in the day that people kind of viewed as sort of life-changing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but after, you know, enough of those and it, it becomes pretty, pretty silly. The idea for creating the ARG website came to Gabriel after he received a bit of very open-ended advice from Tom Lynch, who was visiting the offices to discuss Galador and its promotion. He came into the New York office <laughs> He was kind of like what you'd imagine a Hollywood type guy to be if you're, you know, looking through a very cliched set of reading glasses there. And he he came over to me and he was like, I don't care what you do, kid, just make it magic. And so that was the visual direction I was given. Um, Yeah, so I tried to make something that felt magical. As Gabriel set about creating this magical experience for the website, he designed a story with two or three updates that was filled with things like newspaper clippings, plans for the transdimensional craft called The Egg, and information about what happened to the father of the show's lead character. Ultimately, visitors discovered that the father, Dr. Bluetooth, had gone to an alternate dimension and left his son behind. They also were given a bit of a pseudoscience lesson about traveling to other dimensions. The website went live with the alternate reality game in late 2001, about four or five months before the show started airing and wrapped up as the show launched when the main Galador website went live. And after the ARG went live, Gabriel was researching how well his creation was being received online by looking through links to the Galador site from external websites when he traipsed into what he calls 
a very strange experience. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, this is, yeah, oh gosh. One of the final mentions of the site, refer links to the site, was on a very strange uh, message board. I don't recall the title of it, but essentially they had a like many, many threads about how this site was indicating that phase three had begun and that they were getting ready to begin their travel into, into the alternate dimension. And that somehow all this stuff was not as fake as I thought it was. Unwittingly, Gabriel had stumbled from the LEGO Group-sanctioned ARG to one of the world's first alternate reality games ever created. It's time to try and explain Gabriel's odd discovery and its surprising connection to Galador. It all circles around an early alternate reality game called Ong's Hat. But instead of me trying to explain it to you, we're going to have the creator walk you through it. Okay, my, my name is Joseph Matheny. My relationship to Ong's Hat is... Um, I guess you'd say the creator of the project. The project started in the late 80s as a cross-media experiment in storytelling. And then it evolved along with the uh, basically uh, network computer BBS culture and then further into the internet-connected culture when internet became kind of a publicly accessible thing outside of universities and military institutions. Yeah, so it eventually evolved into what I guess now is known as transmedia. Okay, this is a bit of a ride. Bear with us. First, uh, a little background. Before ad agencies were using alternate reality games to launch video games and music albums, there were a dedicated group of creators, artists, writers, creative thinkers who loved the idea of creating these living, breathing bits of fiction that sometimes deliberately blurred the lines between reality and fantasy, sometimes even taking readers with them. Joseph and a couple of his pals were among that group. They liked the idea of creating something that had a sense of magic and fantasy and then trying to inject it into reality. In the case of Joseph and his friends, that was Ong's hat, which, like most ARGs, wasn't really a book or an online story or really any one single thing. It was a bunch of things creatively planted in the world in an attempt to make it part of the cultural zeitgeist. And what became known as Ong's Hat started in 1989. Joseph tells us that the first thing published in connection with Ong's Hat was actually a pamphlet that was presented by its creator as something he just stumbled upon, not made. This actually existed as a physical item that was copied and passed around between friends. It looked like a book catalog, but was really setting the groundwork for what was to come. Eventually, that passed-around fictional prop found its way onto the early internet via the website Boing Boing. It started out as a print zine back in the early 90s. Here's Joseph Matheny again. And then followed that with another piece that I did in around 94. By that time, I was like just really focusing on the online part of the project, this was very early and online, so none of those guys were on bulletin board systems. Nobody was on internet, so I just kind of took it over with everybody's agreement. I said, I'm going to keep going with this project. I have a vision for it. I think it's going to be something I can do where, with interactive media, electronic art, and all of those people, you know, 
were not familiar with any of the techniques or the methodology or even the philosophy behind that. And they just went, okay, then it's yours. And it just went from there. Joseph tells us he and his friends had all of these interesting political and cultural ideas that they wanted to get people to talk about. But they wanted to introduce them in a way that was a bit more compelling than the norm. So they decided to try and deliver their ideas via a sci-fi narrative. They were also big fans of Jorge Luis Borges, a literary giant from Argentina and one of the fathers of the magic realism movement. Borges' stories often played around with the notion of reality and surrealism, and the trio of friends wanted to do the same thing, but in a more technologically advanced way. Some in the group were inspired to do this to see how it would spread across the different forms of media in an age when networking and the internet was just starting to take significant root in society. Others liked the idea of seeing if they could retroactively create a piece of folklore that felt like it had always been there, despite being, in fact, something new. While the story was told across pamphlets, embedded clues, and short stories, there was a plot. Joseph said that their fictional story was actually based on a nugget of truth. He said that a group of Princeton professors created a fictional mathematician who lived in Ong's Hat, New Jersey. They used this pseudonym whenever they wanted to publish ideas or concepts they worried would lead them to losing tenure. Joseph and his friends loved the idea of this and ran with it in creating their ever-evolving narrative. When we got our hands on it, it became, there was a bunch of scientists who were hanging out in Hat, disenfranchised with academic life, who ran into some mystics who also had some of the same ideas and were looking into some of the same outcomes that the scientists were trying to achieve, only they were coming at it from a mystical perspective. And the scientists... Being good scientists realized that you shouldn't discard something just because it's mystical in origin. And so this hybrid science mysticism school was born in Ong's Hat, known as the Ashram. And they started studying how can we travel between dimensions using a hybrid of mysticism and science. And so what they discover is that you know, somewhere out there using the Everett Wheeler-Graham theory of multiple infinite dimensions, that everything that could happen does happen in some dimensions somewhere. And so one of the dimensions, there's an Earth that has every form of flora and fauna that's ever been, with the exception of humans. So you've got a pristine, untouched, pure Eden, basically, wilderness, that doesn't have humans, has never seen the effect of humans and doesn't feel the effect of humans. And these people find this and realize this is the place to go and start a new civilization. And so they disappear. They don't come back. They leave behind the documents so that you, the reader, the participant in this game, if you put the clues together, you'll be able to either build a device or... Several of you can build a device, and then you can you can go join them in this great Edenic wilderness. <laughs> um, so, it, in essence, it becomes a treasure hunt with an impossible goal. <laughs> now, while Joseph was one of the creators of the Ong's Hat Arg, the nature of all these sort of creations means you're not really supposed to have a creator. It's all facts. So instead, 
Joseph inserted himself into the fiction of this sort of game by saying he was just another person researching the stories surrounding Ong's hat, a sort of Ong's hat anthropologist. And it worked, perhaps too well. Soon people were tracking Joseph down, trying to find out what he knew about a piece of fiction he co-created, but that they felt was very much real. So I had people showing up at my house, camping out on my lawn, trying to break into my back door, becoming confrontational. Some of these people like were extremely unhinged, you know, so I had family in the house at the time and I became very concerned. There's like two people I had to walk off my property at gunpoint. Um, so yeah, it, it, it became, I mean, it's, it's, that's not a lifestyle anybody should have to live. And, uh, anything they could do to harass me, they, they tried to do, and some of them did. And so it just became very, very, uh, exhausting. <laughs> that's the word. <laughs> yeah. And so that's when I realized that I needed to conclude this project. And then I just, in 2001, I just came out and made a statement and said, we're not doing this anymore. If you weren't aware, this was an experimental art project. If you don't get that, I'm sorry, but we're not going to facilitate this bad behavior anymore. And I mean, it got outlandish, the behavior. So I just couldn't handle it anymore. It was not in my range of vision to think that somebody would. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm not so stupid as to think like, there's not like, one in a million people that thinks that Harry Potter is real. You know, I mean, there are people like that out there, right? But they're by and far a very thin margin of the whole. So it really wasn't even in my thought process. If I knew really need to be careful that, that people aren't taking this seriously, it just wasn't in my range. It's like, I didn't even think about it. I didn't think I had to think about it. But ironically, Joseph's revelation that the whole thing was a work of fiction was the only thing that the Ong's Hat true believers didn't believe. It was, for some of them, a very real series of events, and there was a way to travel to other dimensions using the egg. Enter Galador. About when Joseph is working hard to convince everyone that Ong's Hat isn't a big conspiracy about transdimensional travel, a website pops up about a doctor traveling to another dimension, in a device called the egg. And the Lego group's Gabriel decides to use the very vehicle that had given life to Ong's hat to create his own shadowy world tied to seemingly the same fiction. It caused a lot of confusion for a lot of people, to say the least. Gabriel, for his part, stumbled across a pocket of hardcore Ong's hat believers who had, themselves, stumbled across his own fictional world of Galador, and they certainly noticed the similarities. Gabriel, though, was bewildered when he started to dig into Ong's hat, initially unaware of its fictional background. He even reached out to some of the forum goers who were more than happy to respond. The message back from them was from someone named like Pale Horse and Rider or something like that. And I've yet to know who that actually is. And they were like, you should really stop and think about what you're doing. Take a look at everything that you've said and think about it. And so it was <laughs> this sort of like quasi-mystical, you know, like non-answer about why the thing that I thought I had come up with all by myself, especially the character's name, it was something like Eon or Ion or something, that I thought I had come up with myself was actually part of their, their mythology. 
Gabriel says he was particularly jarred by the message and discovery because he had just finished reading a book by Philip K. Dick about alternate realities and the nature of what is and isn't real. One of the things I remember in the books is that the characters were looking for signs that their reality was actually sort of like that there was another reality and our reality is flawed and isn't the true one. But they would watch TV. And at one point, I believe a Burger King commercial overlapped with a children's cartoon and it spelled the words King Felix in the broadcast just for a second. And the characters in the book thought this was a sign reinforcing that there's another reality. And so because I had just read this, I was like kind of, I guess a little, my pumps were primed for even this to be uh, something that made the least bit of sense. But yeah, they were thinking that because the stories had overlapped and because there was eerie similarity, even down to character names, that this was somehow a sign that there was another dimension to travel to and they should be gearing up and getting ready to go. I used to wonder what my life was about until this weird map and flying egg took my friend Allegra and me to a place called the Outer Dimension. That's where I met Jens, Euripides, and Nepal, who are waiting for me to come and defeat the evil Gorm. To do that, I've got to find the pieces to this key that'll unlock the kingdom of Galador. Thankfully, I got my glitch to help defend us against Gorm's cronies. I'm Nick Bluetooth, and our mission? Free Galador and save the Outer Dimension. Watch Galador Saturdays and Sundays on ABC Family. There was perhaps an explanation for all of this. Not long after making contact with the folks at Ong's Hat, Gabriel caught word that there was a threatened lawsuit in the works against the creators of Galador by the creators of Ong's Hat. Joseph said he contacted the Lego group about the similarities between his work and the show. It turns out that years before, Joseph had shopped the story around to a number of producers and networks as a potential kids' show, but no one seemed interested. But then Galador popped up. Both works, he noted, have a central figure from New Jersey named Nick. Both involve trans-dimensional travel, and both have a vehicle called the Egg. Joseph said he thinks that the idea from Ong's hat somehow found its way into Galador. And so he reached out to the Lego group to point that out. He declined to say what happened, but tells us he never filed the lawsuit. Ironically, Joseph's goal was to embed his fiction into culture in a way that would make it hard to extract his storytelling from what did and didn't actually happen, to essentially create something that felt like folklore that had been around forever and belonged to no one. Tom, for his part, said he never heard about the threatened lawsuit, but that shows are often sued by people who believe their ideas were swiped. As all of this was happening, though, the television show, the toys, and the video games were all marching steadfastly toward a February 2002 launch. Galador Defenders of the Outer Dimension was meant to be a technical marvel, a live-action show empowered by deft costuming, over-the-top practical effects, CGI, and green screening, all then enriched by subtle audio technology that brought toys to life in the homes of all of the children watching. But that's not exactly what happened. I still remember we looked at each other and said, uh, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> That's Niels Milan Pedersen talking about the designer's reaction to the show. 
It turns out that not everyone was a big fan of the look of the show. Niels and the designer said they didn't get a chance to see the show until it was very close to launching. He and a group of 150 people from the Lego group went to an auditorium and watched the first two episodes. When the lights went up, the room was mostly quiet. Well, the first reaction uh, in the start, it, well, it looked good, but then it was mostly when uh, we first saw one of the figures. It was this uh, green, little, toad-looking creature. I actually made him. Allegra, it is my honor to introduce to you the arch-philosopher of the royal court of Galador, Ripides. It was the first time we saw him, and it was this man in a rubber suit. It really looked like some of those old horror movies from the 50s. We really felt that, oh, this is not this is not what we expected. Of course, there wasn't CGI and those things wasn't as good in those days, but those men in rubber suits, that looked absolutely awful. So, where is our young warrior? Didn't he fly this up here? No. I, I was personally very disappointed when I saw him, I have to say. So, and uh, that was also what the other guy said, uh, those figures. And also the robotic figure, uh, I think he was called Jens. He didn't look like a robot at all. He looked like, yeah, a guy in a robot suit. It was not, it was not because at this point, of course, we were also used to uh, the first uh, Star Wars movies. So we had hoped that it would be a little in that league. Yeah, it certainly wasn't. Neil's immediate concern was the toy line he and others at the Lego Group were working on. While they knew it was a very different sort of toy for the company, they felt they had created something that kids could enjoy playing with. But they also hoped that the show wouldn't hurt the toy's chances. They really tried to sell them as those action figures and didn't, on the boxes, they don't encourage the kids to take the figures apart and build new figures. You can build whatever you want with this. You can mix the thing and use it as a figure-building system. We really thought, yeah, they will show that, and as long as they show that, we'll be okay, because it seemed that the kids actually loved the thing when we had tests. But the problem was that they actually never showed that on the boxes. It was out of our hands, but I think that... We had talked about that the TV shows would mostly be shown in the U.S. And if they still tried to sell it as a building figure system, we might be able, because at this point where they were going to launch the first batch of the series, we already had been working on the next, uh, the coming year's launches. And they were very, very strong. We had some really, really great figures. People who see them, we still have the prototypes here, and people who come and see them says, wow, we would have loved them on the market. Uh, so we still thought that, yeah, we have a good product, so if we are selling it right, it can be good. And then this TV series, well, uh, let's forget about them and then try to sell it as a building figure system. Meanwhile, Tom was getting a different sort of bad news. It was horrible. It was horrible. I remember the day the event turned. We were finishing up the show, like we probably had another month of shooting or two months, maybe just a month shooting. And I'll never forget, I'm in Montreal, as cold as can be. 
And we're in this, these sound stage areas where there's sound stages all around us, like, you know, three, six, nine deep. And what we call the alleyway, which is the space between sound stages. I look down the alleyway. I'm just taking a walk, thinking of what's next, whatever problem to put out. And I see Rich Ross and Gary Marsh. And I, I might have been a third people. Rich was president of Disney Channels. Uh, Gary was executive VP. And they're walking down the corridor. They're walking down the alleyway. And we're outside. I go, and I've known both of them. And they're both fine men. And I consider them friends. I said, hey, guys, what's up? What are you guys doing here? They go, we just bought the family channel. I go, oh, man. Because now this is just my mind. Them buying the family channel, they bought for Power Rangers because Power Rangers was making 150 or $200 million a year in licensing at that time, if not more. And my brain immediately went to, oh, my God, what are they going to promote? The Power Rangers or Galador, the new product? And I just remember it felt like I was, I just felt horrible. I just felt horrible because, and I'm not saying anybody else ever said this, but in my mind, I'm going, why wouldn't Disney put all their promotional money into shows they own wholly instead of shows they own part of, and they only own part of Galador? That was a tough day. That was a tough day for me. To make matters worse, when the show launched, the reaction among critics was not so good. We had some good reviews. We had some people confused. We had a little muddled. Muddled wouldn't have been the word, but it had been like, wait, this kid is in another dimension. How do you get there? What's going to happen? When I did The Journey of Alan Strange, which was an alien kid left behind, and he was African-American, the reviews for that were, this is breakthrough television. When I did Alex Mack, which featured a girl superhero, this has changed kids' television. When I did Kids Incorporated, Nothing like this has been on television. I mean, those were the reviews I was used to getting, right? And these reviews came out and they were, I will say that they were lukewarm to good to a couple great. It was, it was challenging. Tom blames the lackluster reception on that last minute channel purchase, which he believes led to less marketing push for his new show. On top of that, the, the toys simply weren't selling. Then the show started getting moved around in the programming schedule, something that Tom said is always a very bad sign. His expectations were that he'd be taking two or three months after wrapping production on those first two seasons and then come back to start shooting the next seasons. Instead, after the final episode of season two aired in August 2002, everything came to a crashing halt. So, Brian, we are deep into our podcast right now, uh -huh. and uh, we haven't even talked about the video games yet. That's true. And there's a reason for that. Like much of the story of Galador, there's a lot going on here. The toy line was meant to have a game developed by Tiertex Design Studios for the Game Boy Advance, and then another game for Windows PC, PlayStation 2, and GameCube, developed by Asylum Entertainment. Both were to be published by Electronic Arts. The GBA game hit in 2002. And, you know, I recently was playing through it. It's a surprisingly fun little action platformer that has you fighting your way across the screen as Nick, glinching different appendages to take on enemies and solve puzzles. But the other version, the one developed by Asylum, never launched. Well, I mean, not really. Nick Ferguson joined the team working on that game as a producer a bit after the studio landed the project. So the LEGO group were very clear that they wanted a quite traditional platformer. 
So it was, you know, intended for a younger audience. The kind of games that we referenced were games like the original uh, Rayman and Crash Bandicoot. So kind of linear platformers where, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of exploration. It was really about getting from A to B, kind of point to point. But it would be a journey that took you through the interesting, exciting kind of environments that was the universe of Galador. So that was the kind of inspiration was we're going to make a fast-paced platformer. And I can remember one conversation with one of the producers from the Lego group who who was kind of asking, you know, how fast, how, how fast is this game? And we weren't sure. And, you know, I think in the end, he was like, it's, it's 200 miles an hour. We want it to be a fast-paced game. Like, you know, how fast is Sonic? I don't know, 160 miles an hour, maybe. This is going to be 200 miles an hour. So I think there was this idea that you were going to be rushing, you know, through these environments. And I remember there's a lot of focus as well on vistas. You know, we wanted to have a very clear channel for the player to, to kind of go down. But we wanted to try and emphasize kind of, you know, have good background art, kind of show the, the kind of exciting environment that this world was taking place in. The team also had to incorporate the special abilities of that Keck Powerizer toy designed by Lau at the LEGO Group to use hidden audio signals to interact with things. So we were given WAV files, I think, which were effectively kind of white noise that triggered the Keck Powerizer. Either embedded in existing sound effects or they were played alongside existing sound effects in the game to trigger the voice at certain points. In the original design documentation, you could have the head of Gorm, who is the, the kind of bad guy in the Galador universe, or you could have the head of Jens, who was uh, one of uh, the main character, Nicholas Bluetooth's allies. And the idea was that the Keck Powerizer would say different things depending whether Gorm or Jens's head was in it. So if you know, if Nick Bluetooth um, kind of ran out of energy, Jens would go, oh no, Nixon. And if Gorm's head was in there, you know, he'd kind of celebrate and go, oh, you know, the, the outer dimension is mine. That was kind of the idea. So there were various triggers. And then there were also some games that you could unlock. Built into the Keck Powerizer itself. So I think we were you know, allocated two or three games, which were, the intention was they'd be unlocked based on uh, the amount of quarium that you'd picked up in the game, which was kind of one of the resources that the players were, were collecting uh, as they kind of traversed through the levels. I must return to my lair. Like the LEGO Group toy designers, the folks at Asylum were also given an early look at the television show. And, like the designers, they weren't exactly blown away by what they saw. We all sat in a meeting room and watched the first episode. And, you know, I think, on the one hand, okay, now we know what these characters look like, and, you know, we have an idea what's going on. But I think there's also a feeling of, it wasn't the greatest show we'd ever seen. And, uh, you know, maybe there are questions like, are, are the effects final? Is this what it's going to look like? And, you know, I think you know, uh, the Lego guys put a brave face in it. But it wasn't like, oh, great, we're working on the most like, amazing game for the most amazing TV show ever. But, of course, that didn't impact the development of the game. Asylum continued their work on the title, the GBA game hit in October 2002 to a mixed reception from critics. Asylum's game was initially scheduled for release in early 2003, but it was pushed back to a September 2003 release at the E3 Video Game Expo that year. 
Nick traveled to E3 not to promote the in-development game, which would have been typical, but to meet with folks about future projects for Asylum post-Galador. And I can remember going to Disneyland just before the E3 properly started, kind of the day before E3 actually opened up. And we went into a Lego store there and we could see all the Galador figures in the store and they were all discounted heavily. <laughs> and in fact, I think you would get a Galador figure for free with any purchase over 30 bucks. So we thought, wow, you know, there was literally a, a big bargain bin in the middle of the store filled with Galador merchandise. And, um, you know, I think that was a point for me personally where I thought, yeah, this, uh, you know, this, this isn't good. Because we were still wrapping up the game at that point. But I was very aware that there was a whole bunch of people back at the studio working away. And part of me thought, maybe I should send this picture to some people. <laughs> and then the part of me that won was like, I don't think anybody needs to see that when they're working hard trying to get the game finished. The team was in the final stages of localization for other regions and quality assurance. There was already a sense that Galador wasn't the success everyone expected it would be and that they just needed to get the game done. Still, walking into the Lego store, happy if not enthused to be wrapping up a Lego game, was like being kicked when you were already down, Nick said. It was disappointing, but I don't think it was really telling us anything we didn't already know. It was just kind of, you know, suddenly it was, it was kind of there in front of us. You know, we spent a lot of time in a, in a studio in North London. And now we're kind of out in the wild on the other side of the world and seeing it play out. So it was disheartening. But, you know, I think, to be honest with you, everyone on the team was kind of looking forward to moving on to something else. We were kind of committed to getting the game done and moving on. So, yeah, it was, it was disappointing. But you know, it didn't end up being the game that I think we'd all hoped and dreamed it would be unfortunately. About two months later, the game was canceled. To this day, Nick doesn't know exactly why, though he can guess. He said the team were all called into a meeting and told that the game was shuttered and that everyone was laid off. But to seemingly everyone's surprise, the game, never actually completed by the developer, still found its way onto store shelves published by Focus Multimedia and ValueSoft in Europe and North America. It wasn't until 2006 that Nick heard that the game he worked on and saw canceled was actually published. I was bemused. I think I felt, well, it's nice that the game's out and I guess people are getting to see it. But for me, honestly, it kind of, I would say it felt a bit like running into an ex-girlfriend, you know, a party that you haven't seen for five years. It was like, oh, it's nice. You know, things are going well. You know, you're out there living your life. You know, um, that's nice. This was probably my, my, my reaction. Galador wasn't just a flop. It's a toy line that has received an enormous amount of blame for things that went wrong at the LEGO Group. Business experts, fans, and even some LEGO Group employees have listed Galador as one of, if not the worst creation of the company in its long and storied history. Some have even said it contributed to the problems that almost bankrupted the company. One LEGO designer called Galador the worst product to come out of the LEGO Group's shaky 90s and early 2000s. The well-regarded book, Brick by Brick, How LEGO Rewrote the Rules of Innovation and Conquered the Global Toy Industry, called Galador an expensive, abysmal failure that made the mistake of competing against another LEGO Group product, Bionicle. But time has been much more kind to Galador. Today, there are quite a number of fans of the odd mix-and-match action figures, including not a few LEGO Group designers. 
Speaking with those directly connected to the project, no one sees it as the abysmal failure described in Brick by Brick. In fact, producer Tom Lynch seemed surprised to hear that his show and the toy it helped to pitch to kids had such a harsh reaction. Ouch, ouch. Um, God, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good at all. But he also feels like there were lessons to be learned from the endeavor. Absolutely. I think that technologically, you always have to push forward. For me, I have to make sure the story is worthy of the technology instead of the other way around. You know, it's easy to lay technology and do all these big things on it, but there better be a story holding its core. And Lego obviously probably learned what kind of toys they need to make or don't make. I just had the creepiest feeling. Yeah. Why do I have the feeling someone's watching us? On the toy side, the people directly involved with designing the Galador figures and tech-packed Keck Powerizer remain proud of the work they did. Lau said in his mind what the team created with the Powerizer was the LEGO Group's first and only game console, one that used the sort of physical movement controls made popular years later by the Nintendo Wii. I was extremely proud of what we have done. I thought it did exactly what it's supposed to do, supporting the play theme, making story starters for the kids to kickstart a different physical place. For me, it's always been important doing product development that you will encourage the users to use it in an interactive way and not being passive. And I thought we did that. Of course, there was areas where we can probably have done it much better. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was kind of a pioneering product because we actually put a lot of new stuff in there. We both have the acoustical communication with the TV show. On top of that, we had all the mini games and all the audio feedback and the display feedbacks. And looking back, maybe for some users, it was too much. We were actually touching new ground in many different areas in one product. And that was fun, but probably also um, too much maybe for some uh, users. To be honest, I still feel that the Galador action figure building system had a lot of play value. At that time, I actually had kids myself at that target age group, and they just loved it and, and played a lot. Uh, that, that was, for a period of time, that was the favorite uh, toy they had. I think it might have had a better chance if it was not linked so much to all the characters of the TV show, but had a more generic characters. Uh, because the building system uh, and the way that you can combine and, and build uh, all these different kind of characters, it actually quite fast. I think that play value, I still believe, had a lot of potential. Reflecting back today on that show from nearly 20 years ago, Tom said he's still proud of what he and his team created. I think I've created 20 series that have gone on the air in this genre, and I love them all. What I don't think I ever did with any of my shows was repeat something that somebody else did. I wasn't derivative. And so you love it for that. I, I love it for the experience. I felt pain that it wasn't a hit. You know, as I said earlier, because the Lego group put a big trust in me. The owner of Lego flew out with the CFO to Montreal on his way to somewhere and stopped and spent a day on set. I mean, this guy's running a made the largest industry in Denmark. 
And he came out and he was just so lovely. He was so lovely a man, a gentleman. And uh, that's the part that hurts is letting people down. Creatively, I have no shame in my game. We did stuff that wasn't done on television. We did things that a lot of shows now probably not directly taking from Galador, but going, oh, yeah, let's combine all these different techniques. You know, in, in the, the effects world, it, you all know what everybody else is doing. When Jim Cameron was shooting Avatar, which was, you know, secret and locked down, all that, everybody knew that he had this new system. I didn't know technically what it was, where he could shoot against a green screen and see the backgrounds and see the actors. You know, the information just travels because effects people are a small community and they go from place to place. So I'm sure it was talked about as either Tommy's great adventure or folly, one of the two. Ultimately, while Galador wasn't well-received at the time, it did go on to impact the Lego group. In terms of design, the figure's system for connecting limbs remains in use today on a number of different toy lines. And of course, there was a big lesson learned from Galador in that period of time at the company. The Lego group realized that, okay, maybe we should stick more to the classic Lego system. This is Neil speaking. I think it was part of that we ended up getting the success we have now. That was that we had had that experience with with Galidor and uh, somebody in management and marketing. They learned a good lesson there. Quite a lot have said, why didn't you continue that? It was quite good, but uh, but we will always have this added question. Why didn't you use uh, it with bricks, uh, together with bricks? Many people saw it the same way that we actually wanted it to be seen. Um, and actually here in the development department, we have quite a few people who are still big time fan of uh, Galidor figures and try to buy up. Uh, they actually, some of them might even have the, had the prices going up because they have bought so many of the Galidor figures. And uh, I have to say that they claim that us who made it uh, are sort of their heroes because they like it. It's quite a lot. <laughs> it's quite fun. So you will always be told this was a failure. But in the same sentence, they will say, but the figures was good. So, yeah, I'm not ashamed to tell that I worked with Galidor. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's okay for me to admit that. All right, uh, hold the music, hold the music again. You know, Ethan, I have to tell you, I, I am a little worried. Hmm. What, what's going on? Well, I mean, I'm an audiophile, a little bit of an audiophile, and, and I, you seem to be going through a lot of records. You're scratching them up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I am. I am. I, I apologize for doing that, but we do have to mention that this is the final episode of season three. Can you believe that, Brian? Three seasons? I know. It's, as weird as this sounds, it actually makes me a little sad yeah. that we're coming to the end of the year, which will be the end of at least this 24 five-year anniversary celebration. That's right. Uh, we have one more season we're looking forward to. Um, you and I have already kind of outlined exactly what that's going to be, and we're excited for many, many more fun games to be mentioned. But yeah, this uh, will give us how long of a break before we're back? Yeah, three weeks. We have a three-week break, and uh, we'll be back with a new episode for season four, our first one of season four, on November 3rd, 
That season's going to run up until almost the last day of the year. Nice. There'll be nine episodes. Good. And we can't tell you what those episodes are yet. We're always worried that something will happen. (laughs) And something does happen. (laughs) It often happens. But they all are filled with these great stories that are going to give you even more insight into what the LEGO Group has done for 25 years in creating amazing video games. So tune in, stick with us, and we'll be back in three weeks. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Your hosts are Brian Crescente and Ethan Vincent. Producing by Dave Tack. Our executive producer is Ronnie Scherer. Creative direction and editing by Ethan Vincent. Research and writing by Brian Crescente. Art direction by Nanan Lee. Graphics and animations by Manuel Lindinger and Andreas Horzinger. Mixing and sound design by Dan Carlisle. Disclaimer voice is Ben Ungren. Openings child voice is Milo Vincent. Music by Peter Primer, foundermusic.com, and excerpts from the Galador TV series and video games. We'd like to thank our participants, Nick Ferguson, Lau Kirstein, Tom Lynch, Joseph Matheny, Niels Milan Pedersen, and Gabriel Walsh. We'd also like to thank the entire LEGO Games team. For questions and comments, write us at bitsandbricksatlego.com. That's bits, the letter N, then bricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks. Thank you.